0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye.
1: Imagine it's 1919 and you are a Boston policeman. You were paid about 15 to 20K in today's dollars. You may work for that as many as 12 hours. You might even work six days a week and work in a dilapidated station house. You might be sleeping there many nights in very cramped condition, two to a bed. To deal with grievances, you seek to collectively bargain the way so many other workers would in 1919, the way your firemen counterparts did, and the way New York City policemen did through their benevolent association, which suggested wage increases, though it did not strike. You have a social club of Boston police officers. And, being skilled workers, you wish to join Samuel Gomper's American Federation of Labor. The commissioner in Boston says he won't deal with a collective group, a union. But he offers a small, maybe in today's dollars, five hundred to one thousand dollar increase, and he bans any union activity. What do you do? You don't just want that five hundred to one thousand increase, you want a little more. This is what happened in Boston in nineteen nineteen, and it led to the original position of public sector unions. It also made the career of future president Calvin Coolidge, who was then governor of massachusetts only two years on the job ben dexter writes bruce i enjoyed the labor podcast particularly the look back and consideration that labor didn't begin with the gilded age the boston police strike of 1919 was an enormous event which far predates kennedy's order and provides much of the background okay well thanks ben and uh, he goes on in his in his question yeah, but I get it. And it is so relevant to delve into a little bit more into unions, even though we discussed it, because as we stated at that time, the union movement now is really a public sector movement. I mean, that's where the growth is. It's where the nearly the majority of union members so close in a couple of years, it will be easily the majority and it might be already. And most of the growth, the momentum's in the favor of more union members being in the public sector. They are joined with other unions, yet they raise some different questions from a policy standpoint, and there's not clear answers. For one, they control a monopoly service. The taxpayers expect, not the service of one company, that customers can go to another company if uh, one company has striking workers. It's a monopoly. So secondly, the demands come at the expense not of a company that will always be limited by its business model, by the amount that it can actually sell and the amount of revenue it has, or it can simply go out of business, but by taxpayers who theoretically are not going to go out of business. A town can go bankrupt, a city can go bankrupt, various financial procedures, but technically they can just continue to be taxed. So this raises some different questions when you start exploring the public sector unions. And again, Not clear answers. The first half of the 20th century, history looked at these unions very differently. So, back to the summer of 1919, the mayor appoints a committee and he tries to work out a deal between the commissioner and these striking workers. The committee says, Look, let them keep this social club that the Boston police have or form an independent union, but we agree with the commissioner, they can't join a national union like the AFL. No good, says the commissioner. He won't even accept. That compromise. He wants them in no union, even an independent union, and he won't bargain with them collectively. The commissioner is visiting with Governor Coolidge. And this is one of the reasons he's fortified in his position. He knows the governor supports him. The police strike 1,100 of the 1,500 member Boston police force, about 70% or so of the Boston police force, walk off the job. Commissioner Curtis, acting with a bit of bluster, had assured Governor Coolidge and the mayor, Boston Mayor Peters, that everything would be fine. He's going to have a volunteer militia patrol the streets. But there's a problem. There was no militia when the time came. There was looting in the shopping areas, hooligans rolling around the streets, tramps all over the place, broken windows, stories of women being accosted and stores being looted. The volunteer police force had not yet assembled. It would take a couple of days. Peters, the mayor, tried to get Governor Coolidge to call the guard in. Coolidge waited. See, Peters was a Democrat, Coolidge a Republican. Peters knew that if Governor Coolidge called in the guard with these striking workers, it's possible it would probably hurt him for re-election of his seat, something that Peters was interested in the governorship, so... Everyone, they were kind of doing a little dance here. On the second day, Peters was forced to ask for the guard. He had to ask Governor Coolidge for the guard, so it was him that that asked. But he made a point of issuing a statement saying, I got no help from Governor Coolidge. The guard, for the most part, Restored order in Boston. It was a big national news story. President Wilson condemned the striking police officers, calling them the enemy of civilization for striking, walking off the job. Coolidge was incensed by the statement that Mayor Peters released as he called for the National Guard and authorized Commissioner Curtis to act at his, Coolidge's, instructions. He also called the policemen in Boston who were striking, deserters. The union responded with a statement saying that many of the members had just fought in France. This was World War I. Uh, Or against Spain in 1898. And asked Governor Coolidge what war had he fought in. You know, that's an accusation that you see many, many times in history, of course. When Gompers, the head of the AFL, sent a telegram to Governor Coolidge asking him to please settle the strike. He responded, and his response became famous. He said to Gompers, There can be no strike against the public safety at any time. That statement from Governor Coolidge became a national quote. Boston replaced the striking policemen with new officers in the easy labor market with all the veterans returning from World War I. And those men who walked out would never be Boston police officers again. Among them was one policeman whose wife, Kathleen, had a baby boy. The police officer's last name was Reagan. The baby boy was named Don. Don Reagan would be the Treasury Secretary and Reagan's Chief of Staff, his family having suffered from a dispute with a public sector union and a Republican official. A little bit of irony of history. Coolidge's stand on public sector unions, or rather strikes, led to national acclaim. He was talked about for president in 1920. Then again, there was a lot of this going on. Leonard Wood, who had crushed strikes all over the country, was also appealing to conservatives. This was a law and order time, 1920. Normalcy was the name of the day. So Coolidge was eventually named the vice president in nomination for the Republican Party. Sixty years later, President Ronald Reagan puts a picture of the Vermont president in the cabinet room of his White House. And when he faces a strike of the air traffic controllers, he holds firm and quotes Coolidge. Yet it's more complicated. We could see Coolidge as this conservative attacking unions. But Coolidge had in his rise from mayor to state senator to president of the Senate to lieutenant governor to governor of Massachusetts been a lot more careful than just being anti-union. He had been supported by unions. He spoke continuously at AFL rallies all around Massachusetts. He voted for a mandatory reduction in working hours for women and children, which was opposed by the textile industry. Nowadays, that doesn't seem too radical, but in the teens, it it kind of was. He voted to increase working man's injury compensation. During the Boston police strike, he went, as he always did as a politician, to speak at an AFL rally and said these words, never again will American labor be cheap. Yet, while governor, he opposed a telephone worker strike. He drew a line clearly between private and public sector unions. Coolidge had no problem with private sector unions and wanted working men's wages to go up. Wilson had two. At least he had drawn a line between union striking. Now, Wilson hadn't condemned the Washington, D.C. police force or the other 36 municipalities in America that had AFL unionized police unions. Wilson just didn't want them striking. 20 years later, Franklin Roosevelt, defender of unions, would warn federal workers who had formed an association that militant action would have no place in the function of government. Paralysis of government, he said, was intolerable. Drawing a line between public sector and private sector unionization. Calvin Coolidge meets Scott Walker, the Wisconsin governor, of course, in his bid to end collective bargaining for state workers, public sector unions in his state, led to demonstrations in the Capitol that we all saw on TV. Yet Walker held firm. But no one seems to be talking about Walker for 2012, well, at least not what I've seen. Walker draws a distinction between private and public sector unions. From time to time, union members themselves make the same kind of distinction. It's an interesting question, though. I think we have to examine it more. I'm almost inclined to draw more of that line. And, And you certainly do see that in America, unionization is increasingly becoming a public versus private sector trend. But don't public sector workers deserve the same consideration as other employees if their working conditions aren't good? Who will fight for them if not some kind of union? In a recent Newsweek article, Joel Klein asks a pretty interesting question. Private sector unions are designed to fight the big corporations, big bad corporations. Public sector unions are designed to fight against the big bad us? That got me thinking. It kind of sounds funny, but maybe he's right. After all, just as capitalists like to reduce labor costs, don't taxpayers like to reduce their costs too? Isn't it logical that anyone funded by a taxpayer group, eventually the taxpayers are going to keep paying you less, paying you less, and make working conditions worse and worse in order to save money and reduce their tax bill? But then you have the answer. What's bad about public sector unions, some would say, is the political muscle they weld over governments. I think you can make that case. They have a tremendous amount of influence in many state capitals. But wait, if there's no official union you now if the CWA isn't representing the workers in a state collectively bargaining can't they just do it through an informal group right to associations in the constitution so if we're just talking about political influence couldn't they just do this through an informal group and have the same influence anyway this is one of those where i'm not going to answer the question but i'm going to cast a little bit of doubt on that distinction that people make between public or private sector unions and just confuse your more. W.V. Sterling writes, Bruce, I just listened to the Five Ways to Look at Labor Unions podcast. Thank you, W.V. Thanks for covering the topic. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. I see the labor movement as the counterbalance to the all-too-human tendency of the capital class to maximize their personal take-home pay. Capital deserves its profit for taking the risk of starting and running a business, but they can easily get carried away. And when they get carried away, way carried away, the other 99.9% of us suffer, so writes W. V. Sterling. And essentially, the real question is, labor unions are then the shield against kind of this capitalist oppression that can happen. Okay, let's examine that. Let's see if it's correct, if I can even answer it. I think applying two ideas might be helpful, that of Marx and that of Milton Friedman. They'll give you some perspective on what's going on in your question. First, Marx. Now, for all of his failure as a creator of a new economic system, as one who critiqued capitalism, Marx is very useful. Of course, he's been taboo to even talk about because of the Soviet Union and perhaps a poorly thought out replacement system for capitalism and a very vague plan. But Marx, in a sense, was a fan of capitalism. This is not well known. He thought capitalism had advanced us pretty well from the feudal system. Well, maybe he wasn't a fan, but he saluted it. Marx was evolutionary in that way. Capitalism was better than the feudal system. It did a lot of good things. It was more efficient. Marx's argument was kind of yours, that There's no incentive for capitalists, the owners of the capitalist class, if you will, to do anything else but pay workers less and less and less because they have to earn more and more and more profit. Eventually, then, Marx theorized, capitalism will destroy itself because there's no way you'll get to a point where workers just simply won't tolerate this and they won't continue to be the makers of production and give all the money over to the capitalists. It's just cannot happen. Capitalism will destroy itself. Now, what he wanted to replace it with, that's where I don't think he got it quite right, or at least he was overly optimistic about what a council of workers would do when they were in control, right? On paper, though, good point. Capitalism, in theory, could just keep destroying itself and creates such misery that workers will rise up in a revolution. How does this all relate to labor unions? Because one could possibly make the argument, the theory, that because of labor unions, maybe there wasn't a revolution. America did not go the way of Russia. But I would argue that the period between 1905 and 1920 was a close call the rise of the Socialist Party, the Socialist Party getting the most votes ever that it would ever get. The worker population was organized. Many workers were in unions, and many of these unions were radical. There was immigrant populations coming to America with different ideas and philosophies than the core ethos of the country. And there were strikes constantly during this period, if you look at 1905 to 1920. They're the big strikes we know about. And then lots of little ones that just don't, again reported well. A general strike in Seattle shut the city down. You see, and that was a really scary thing for many. And that's why the mayor of Seattle at that time became kind of like a Giuliani-like figure. He started touring around the country as this kind of law and order. He actually quit being mayor in order to do that. Hmm. Echoes of a certain former vice presidential candidate. Uh, but in any case, The reason that he got so much credit for standing up to what occurred in Seattle is that a general strike was very scary. In other words, all of the workers, not the workers who had the initial dispute, but all of the workers in sympathy walking off the job. So rail car, meatpacking, steel workers, garbage men, firemen, police, everything. Shut the city down. That happened a lot in America. Maybe we would have had a very different system. Maybe we even had something close to a revolutionary-type government. I think it was only World War One that made unionism seem a little bit unpatriotic for a time. It just ruined the organizing potential of un- unions and ended some of the militant striking. And as I talked about in the Union podcast, you had gompers out there saying, guys, don't strike during World War One." World War One really did it in. But I really think overall, a combo of strikes being beaten down, taking a hard line with some of these unions, sometimes the unions winning, and governments, both state and federal, passing laws that help to alleviate some of the worst cases, and labor unions winning some of these battles. And that's what prevented more radical scenarios. See, Marx figured That the worker or proletariat, when he said proletariat, he didn't mean tramps, he didn't mean hobos, homeless people. He meant workers, skilled workers, that they would revolt against the capitalist. And in theory, when they won the revolution, since they had been a worker, since they had been a proletariat, and they knew what it's like to be exploited, they would be much better in government. That's a lot to rest your entire theory on, and at least in the Soviet Union example and a few others, Revolutions are costly. And I think if you're thinking about the average worker between 1905, say, and 1920, going for a full-fledged revolution, again, that Seattle general strike, pretty scary. That's a lot of risk. So it's much easier if the union wins a few battles. You go along with that and don't go the full way. So then was the union movement a circuit breaker against revolution? Did we get something more than just wage improvement out of the union? Did we get resolution of strife in the country. If that is true, then labor unions could have been the thing, at least in the American example, that foiled the Marx plan. And in doing so, out of necessity, gave the middle class more money. And if you're really a labor historian, you're going to say that we still benefit from that strife today. You benefit from it when you take Two weeks, three vac- weeks vacation, whatever you got. Okay. There's a counter to that. And the counter is well, it's not labor unions that generated this middle class income, it's better productivity and the fact that capitalists invested in the Plants. And no, Marx was wrong for other reasons. The reasons Marx was wrong is that it's not simply that the capitalists are going to grind the workers down to less and less pay. Yes, in some industries, yes, where there's absolutely no skill, they're going to do that. But they're also going to need to retain some workers. And if there's competition for workers in a good economy, everybody's going to do fine. Plus, they're going to invest in the plant and they're going to make for a better economy for everyone better jobs, better competition with other countries. That's examining the Marx theory and the counter to it. Now, Friedman, to be fair, I think there's questions that Milton Friedman raises that you also must consider in your question, uh, WV. Are unions benefiting some in the middle class, but then reducing the general employment in the industry that they are in? So did they bring the middle class just for a few, and then other workers were denied work. See, I had a line in the labor podcast that I didn't use, it got cut out, but that it's hard to write a folk song about lack of plant investment or the reduction of employment or lost profits or lost GDP. Hard to write a folk song about that, but rhyming might be an issue. And certainly, if someone is a scab who was denied work or a non-union member couldn't get in the union who was denied work, They're never going to be seen because they're not a worker. So it's easier to be sympathetic to a union because they're an organization that's visible, that exists. You know, that's kind of uh, one argument there. Did we as a country deny ourselves a better growth rate generally in the U.S. economy because we made that decision I was talking about earlier in order to reduce strife, we put unions in a special place? And what is that special place? Well, the Cato Institute criticizes unions as eliminating common law rights really they're criticizing the union the laws around unions i own a factory i cannot fire or hire based on union sympathy of that worker i must let union organizers in in some cases i cannot form a company workers union right an in-house union to hear feedback from my internal workers if they're in an industry that's unionized. And if they vote for a third-party union for someone to come in from the outside, I now have to deal with these outsiders. This happening to me in my place of business, where I pay all of them and on property that I own every bit of. Not common law that I know of. Well, Cato's most certainly right, but yet there's no folk song for that either. And should there be? I think it goes without saying that union rights are a kind of scaffolding in America, a scaffolding of law on top of the existing common law, a way of quelling employer labor strife, a way of quelling union versus union strife, and employee versus scab strife, and a way of making sure that American consumers get the materials and goods they're expecting, which was getting to be a problem if you're looking at the labor strife around the turn of the century. And it just reduced strikes in general. They didn't completely eliminate strikes, the union laws, but reduced it and set rules to the game. But those rules, obviously, go in the way of some uh, property rights. It would be difficult to argue otherwise. And to gain a reduction in that strife, we made a decision in our laws that labor is not a shoe. It's not a widget. It's not a banana. It's something very different in our laws, and different rules apply. Is it right? Is it wrong? That's something to consider, but we should be aware of it and we should know the positive and negatives of it as a policy choice. We know unions increase the wages of workers who are members. Simple fact. We suspect, perhaps, that their presence encouraged non union places to match or exceed those benefits. There are certainly examples. I talked about the Boston. Police strike earlier. Well, as it turned out, I didn't tell this part of the story, all of the replacement workers for the Boston policemen who walked out got the increase that the Boston police workers were seeking, even though they didn't get a union, which is what they were seeking as well. Why did they get that? Out of the goodness of the city's heart? You can certainly make a good case. I don't have time to make it here, but certainly it's pretty easy to build a case that there were non-union shops and companies who matched benefits because they didn't want a union. That's not an empirical study, though, and we haven't looked at what happened in the aggregate. We know that before unions, there were other things, other types of clubs. We suspect that if we got rid of unions, we'd have to get rid of the water cooler, the cafeteria, and the smoking area as well because something would take its place. And if there were no unions to bolster the middle class, well... You'd probably have to look at a series of aggressive or, someone might say, progressive laws enacted that might set even higher minimum wage levels. That would be the only way other than a union to guarantee with some type of legal remedy what a middle class wage would be. But if you look at Milton Friedman, he's going to go with the increase in productivity the increase in capital investment. One question that he asks is, and this is related to a minimum wage, but really goes for any situation where you're using a mechanism like a union to increase the wage for each worker, why not $50 an hour? Why not $200 an hour? Why stop it at six or seven? And in a similar way, he argues, if unions made America more prosperous, then why not introduce unions to poor countries like bangladesh for instance would that make them instantly rich if they're not rich now no he says that would be absurd it would be only capital investment that would make that happen well that's milton friedman and you know some people love him rah rah free market free to choose some people hate him he still can adopt that professorial tone because he's still talking about theory. There's one other issue we have to consider, and that is the reality of politics and the reality that there are workers, they are in numbers, through history there was strife, and if we change the laws, there'll be additional events that will occur and probably additional strife. Do we want it? Is our law system a kind of truce between these two forces? Whether that's good or bad, something to consider. Now, if you're against unions, you're going to say, no, I just want the free market. It's not entirely true you do want to use the legal system in one way or another, because you're going to have to, if we go into the past, the big hand of the law was used, the big hand of the court system was used, injunctions against strikers, law enforcement, to break strikes where they occurred. And I think you'd have to go back to that to really make it happen if some of the more progressive labor laws were repealed. Now, obviously, much of the existing law does support unions. There's one bit though that I think is not often considered, and that's in the Taft Hartley Act, you are not allowed to engage in sympathy strikes. So a sympathy strikes mean, you know, we're going to strike because we don't like what's going on with that union. No, you got to strike a grievance against your employer. You know, but if we were laissez-faire about it, unions should be able to strike for whatever reason they want. We're not going to use the law to support them or the law against them. And that's not really the system we have. And if we changed it, there would be some of these consequences.